Okay, so let's keep going with Kant here. This episode is going to take on the transcendental dialectic. So this is roughly the second half of the entire critique. So the first, well, I guess the first two, I should say, the transcendental aesthetic, the transcendental uh, analytic, and now the transcendental dialectic. I say half because this is just such a big part of it. But before then, a few things to mention. So this is available as podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, any one of those places, not Google Play because of some formatting issues. Uh, and I also have a Patreon for anyone that wants to join that. Obviously, don't feel obliged, but my goal right now is to just make enough. So that's like $12 a month to pay for the podcast servers. Uh, so if you can contribute, that'd be greatly appreciated. But if not, absolutely don't feel obliged. All right. So now, transcendental aesthetic. So what do you, sorry, transcendental dialectic. Sorry. So what he's trying to do here is challenge the way that dialectics try to imagine something beyond themselves. So dialectics is the process by which two contradictory opinions, you know, smash together. And for those more familiar with it in a kind of Hegelian sense, they smash together and then form a synthesis. So out of them comes a new idea, which is then serves as the thesis, which is then contradicted by an antithesis. So what Kant is trying to do here is to show that as long as these two approaches, that is the thesis and the antithesis, try to frame their problems around pure concepts, that is without having any attachment to sense or experience or the empirical world, then they are just, they exist on empty grounds. They are, they stand upon nothing pretty much. So the kind of dialectics he is opposing take many different forms, and there are going to be a lot of terms I present here that kind of encapsulate his critique, or the form that he's trying to critique. But right off the bat, I want to name a, a few. So he's challenging rational psychology, rational cosmology, and rational theology, because they think it possible, essentially, to understand the world purely a priori, that is, without experience, without sense, without empiricism, anything like that. So, however, however, it's important to note that he doesn't want to do away with them completely because he thinks there's there's something salvageable about them in that they are revealing like a fundamental truth that can be kind of unearthed through his own method. That is the transcendental approach. So that was a kind of like preface into what he's doing here. Now let's actually get into what he says. So for him, as he mentioned earlier, probably in the first episode, I would have presented this. He says dialectics is an illusion. We shouldn't get it twisted here, because appearance for him does not equal illusion. So, as we've been made privy to already, Kant is very interested in the way that the only way we can see things in the world is in their appearance form. That is, we don't see a thing in itself, we can't feel a thing in itself, we can't smell a thing in itself. Everything appears to us only in an appearance form that our brain can essentially comprehend and make sense of. But that appearance is not illusion. For him, appearance is very much reality, because that's all we really have. Illusion is something different, because illusion almost claims to give us a truth. It almost claims to be able to say, with reason, I can arrive at fundamental truths of being, of God, of mortality, of immortality, anything like that. To which he says, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes here. We can't claim that without having a kind of relationship to the world. So to kind of reiterate his critique of uh, Descartes, 
you know, he says that when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, Kant says, how can you think without concepts? And how can you get concepts without having a, re a relationship to the world, without having a relationship to your senses? So for Kant, senses are never mistaken. And that might seem like a little bit of a wild claim, but he says that they aren't mistaken precisely because they do not judge. You know, judgment is reserved for the understanding, an understanding derived from concepts. So for him, all senses do is just take the world at face value, however it presents itself to it. So even though there might be false information given, the senses can't be held accountable because they are just doing their job, that is, they perceive. So while the senses cannot be held accountable for misunderstanding, Kant makes another interesting claim suggesting that the understanding itself, that is, the process of understanding in our own minds, is also incapable of being incorrect, or is in, it is incapable of being false. So that's that might seem strange. How can the understanding then not be false? Well, in his words, hence neither understanding by itself, without the influence of another cause, nor the senses by themselves, can err. The first cannot because while it acts merely according to its own laws, its effect, the judgment, mustn't necessarily agree with these laws. But the formal aspect of all truth consists in agreement with the laws of the understanding. In the senses, there is no judgment at all, neither a true nor a false one. So then, we might ask, where does misunderstanding arise from? Well, he says, it only arises when there's a dynamic interplay between sensation, between the senses, and between understanding where one misleads the other. So he continues here, It follows that error is only affected through the unnoticed influence of sensibility on understanding, through which it happens that the subjective grounds of the judgment join with the objective ones and make the latter, that is the objective ones, deviate from their destination, just as a moved body would of itself always stay in a straight line in the same direction, but starts off on a curved line if at the same time another influence, another force influences it in another direction. So the understanding by itself is not something that is necessarily uh, can be manipulated in and of itself, because it is an apparatus of which we have very little control. It's just something that exists within us, which is exactly what his transcendental analytic is trying to get at. Like, what is that thing in us that comprehends the world? So judgment then, as he's already made clear, involves a very um, dynamic interplay between the senses and understanding. So for him, that represents a kind of imminence that is a, a kind of perfect being within reality in the world that is a being within of reason within the world. If there's any attempt to try to escape that, to try to just use concepts to explain things without sensibility, then he says that that is transcendent. But we must make a distinction here where when he uses the word transcendent, he doesn't mean it in the way that he uses transcendental. Because transcendent for him is just a kind of uh, mode of pure reason. That is, it just tries to get outside of the plane of senses, of uh, reality, of experience, to get to kind of pure things. So for him, the transcendental is the process by which we recognize a priori, you know, what exists to make sensation possible and all that. So it's important to keep those two things uh, in check to know their, their, how they deviate. So now in the case of judgment, that is in the kind of um, empirical sphere, to be logically consistent 
and that is logically not in a transcendental sense, but in a dialectical sense, then uh, if you deviate from that, you know, logical framework, the, you know, the Socratic way we can think about it would be A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C, the syllogistic method. So for Kant to deviate than that from that would then be to commit oneself to what he calls a logical illusion. Now he opposes that to what he calls then a transcendental illusion. So in the logical illusion, everyone around you knows that you are committing a fallacy and that therefore you're, you're either doing a non sequitur, that is your, uh, you know, your propositions doesn't, do not actually equate the conclusions you derive from them or anything like that. Uh, whereas with the transcendental illusion, it actually kind of likes the fact that it strays from the beaten path. Because the transcendental illusion is totally committed to the process of kind of locating things in themselves, which, as Kant has said, is totally impossible. So in his words here, transcendental illusion does not cease, even though it is uncovered and its nullity is clearly seen into by transcendental criticism. Example, the illusion in the proposition, the world must have a beginning in time. So the cause of this is that in our reason, considered subjectively as a human faculty of cognition, there lie fundamental rules and maxims for its use, which look entirely like objective principles, and through them it comes about that subjective necessity of a certain connection of our concepts on behalf of the understanding is taken for an objective necessity, the determination of all things in themselves. So now, this is where the point hits home, I think. So this is an illusion that cannot be avoided at all. Just as little as we can avoid it, that the sea appears higher in the middle than at the shores. So the transcendental dialectic then will therefore content itself with uncovering the illusion in transcendental judgments, while at the same time protecting us from being deceived by it. For what we have to do with here is a natural and unavoidable illusion which itself rests on subjective principles and passes them off as objective, whereas logical dialectic in its dissolution of fallacious inferences has to do only with an error in following principles or with an artificial illusion that imitates them. So under every kind of logical proposition, the transcendental dialectic is fully aware of the fact that it is predicated primarily on, well, not primarily, it is predicated on, upon illusion. That is the idea that you know, with language, you can arrive at some kind of truth exterior to experience. So then from here, he goes on to explain an idea that goes back to Plato. So here is the idea of the idea, the idea. Here's the idea versus the ideal. So the idea is something that, you know, exists in our minds, you know, we conceive of the idea. And then the ideal is where that idea almost goes into practice. So for philosophers, expressing the idea is one endeavor, right? That's one task. However, expressing system of, quote, morality, legislation, and religion is a totally other task. So morality, legislation, and religion are real zones where the, quote, unquote, idea uh, is realized, albeit never successfully. So Kant relates the idea of the transcendental to the idea, but that for him doesn't make it irrelevant. So whereas in the idea, no concept or no real object can be thought through it, right, because we can't think through pure concepts into experience, Kant says that the transcendental uh, use is not quite as useless, right? So what he's saying is that the transcendental use actually gets at the ways that ideas are even made possible.
So within the dialectical approach that has much more of an affinity with the, the logical sequence of thinking, uh, he locates three kinds of relations. So these three relations are the relation to the subject, or actually let me read a little more. So if we combine um, all the relation of representations of which we can make either a concept or an idea are of three sorts. That is the relation to the subject, to the manifold of the object in appearance, and to all things in general. So these three relations set the stage for three other modes of thought or inquiry. That is, the first one being, uh, to reiterate, the relation to the subject, which sets the stage for what he calls the object of psychology. Uh, number two, the uh, to the manifold of the object at appearance, which sets the stage for the object of cosmology, which we'll explain later. Uh, and third, um, to the uh, to the, all things in general, that is, to the object of theology. So these provide the scope to view the soul, science of the world, and God, essentially, which he's going to be critical of as, as we go on. But again, he still sees things that can be redeemed from them. So these three things can be th considered as well in terms I'm about to put them as, you know, the subject, reality, and then God. So for him, no objective deduction of these transcendental ideas is really possible, such as we could provide for the categories. For just because they are ideas, they have in fact no relation to any object that could be given congruent to them. But we can undertake a subjective introduction to them from the nature of our reason. So then here he takes an interesting turn. He says that there are two ways, roughly, and this sets the stage for how he's going to kind of pit the dialectical uh, thesis and antithesis against one another, not in a dialectical way, but in a transcendental way. So he says that we could take two different ways of seeing the world, and this will harken back to the transcendental aesthetic. So as he said there, when we see a thing in space, we know that that exists in space because of our knowledge of space and our knowledge of time, right? We don't know how we have knowledge of these two things, but we do. And they give us the capacity to actually see things in the world and perceive them and understand them. So there are two processes by which we can look at this sequence, where the entire totality of all things occurring, that is all things in time, are, is, is, is a totality that kind of makes up a transcendental scope that we can see the entire sequence. But to do that, we can either look back to the uh, absolute beginning, if such a thing exists, or we can look in the descending order that is from the beginning to the present, which is all just is made up primarily of all things being conditioned. Now, no one thing exists without having been conditioned by something. That is, no one thing just pops into existence without having uh, kind of a cause behind it. But of course, this is where it gets really complicated. <laughs> And he's going to trouble even this. But just for now, bear with me, that we can either look at it through an ascending order that is going back to the beginning, or a descending order up till the present, viewing all the conditioned experiences. So let me read it here. So the transcendental ideas serve only for ascending in the series of conditions to the unconditioned. That is the first moment, the unconditioned being the thing that had nothing preceding it. But regarding descent to the conditioned... There is a very extensive logical use that our reason makes of the laws of the understanding, but no transcendental use. And if we make ourselves an idea of absolute totality of such synthesis, of a progressive one, 
that is the an idea of the whole series of all future alterations in the world, then this is just a thing of thought, which is thought up only arbitrarily and not presupposed necessarily by reason. For the possibility of something conditioned presupposes the totality of all of its conditions, but not the totality of its consequences. Consequently, such a concept is not a transcendental idea, which is what exclusively concerns us here. And it's not transcendental because it's just looking at almost like pure things happening in the world, like pure uh, synthetic um, things, not being concerned with how even the act of seeing them as the transcendental aesthetic was, was made possible through the existence of space and time. So these two opposing ways of looking at the world, that is through a kind of logical sequence, not a transcendental one, sets the stage for what he calls the paralogism, that is the illogical almost, or paralogism relating to antinomy, which is another term that will come up, would be like holding uh, two contradictory positions on a single thing. This sets up the paralogism of pure reason. So like we mentioned earlier, a logical illusion is when there's a, like a fallacy happening at the level of you know, logic at our kind of conscious level. The same kind of thing can be said about a logical para, uh, paralogism, which he calls a falsity of a syllogism due to its form. Now he opposes that to a transcendental paralogism, which has a transcendental ground for inferring falsely due to its form. So this has its ground in the nature of human reason. So this presents a slippery problem for uh, the subject, right? Because we have a subject here, and that subject, you know, at a conscious kind of superficial level engages in logical uh, maneuvers throughout their daily lives. And then at the on the transcendental end, you know, deep that they aren't aware of, um, there is always a kind of slipperiness between what is made possible because of that transcendental plane and what is made possible by its, you know, always conflicting with itself. Because it's impossible to imagine it. It's impossible to come to terms with it. So here he had he adds another idea. Not an idea in the way that I was just talking about it, but just in the abstract sense, where he introduces the act of thinking, or specifically the I think. So this is almost like the pure act itself, but it is almost one that kind of comes before, you know, you can think. And there's an, actually a way we can imagine this, or it's presented in uh, the Vedic tradition in Hinduism, where uh, there's, a, there's a story about a god, I can't remember which one, and that's bad, but um, tells some subordinate gods, demigods I assume, that the self is what says I am. So there's something before the I that they call in that tradition the self. So I think we can think of the same thing here where the I think belongs to that kind of pre-conscious domain, but it is yet still something above a pure like transcendental terrain. So this I think essentially portends all possible judgments. Uh, and it and for him, and this is where, you know, his kind of strange dogmatism steeps in, uh, it is the language of the soul. Now this is the soul, and I'm being a little unfair, this is the soul as it relates to his transcendental aesthetic when he's talking about time, right? Time exists in the soul that is on the inside of us. So it is the language of the soul and any attachment to world 
that is any attachment of the I think to the world, then turns it into the language of the body. So the I think has a kind of dynamic connection, a kind of holistic connection to the soul, that is time, and to the body existing in space. So he says, it seems as though we can only actually get at this thing called the I think, or the thinking, through a kind of transcendental approach, because it's dealing with both perception and reason at the same time. So here we can, he says, we can kind of infer some characteristics of the soul, which give us uh, essentially what he calls the pure doctrine of the soul, which allows us to make sense of immateriality, incorruptibility, and personality. So immateriality being the fact that the soul is not material, you know, incorruptibility, the soul is pure, not not in the pure reason sense, but pure as in uh, invaluable. It doesn't make mistakes. Uh, and personality, in that that is where, as person, you derive from. So he gives the I think precedence then over the I, because the I presupposes too much about the ability to think oneself as a thing in itself, right? So if I think myself an I, as Descartes did, then therefore I have too much faith in the fact that I am a self-constituted being that I can perfectly think. Or the I think therefore I am that I've already mentioned uh, creates too much of a divide between the thinking and the world outside. So this gives us a new way to imagine the categories as they were presented in, I think, the last episode or the second one. So now he classifies the four of them as follows. So the soul is substance, in its and then number two, in its quality, it is simple. Number three, does not alter the unity, that is, it's not plural. And then fourth, in relation to possible objects in space. So that kind of reads like a sentence. So one, to repeat, the soul is substance, two, in its quality, simple. Three, does not alter unity, not plurality. And four, in relation to possible objects in space. So relation to these four categories, he gives us the paralogisms that trouble them when thought, thought about in a logical sense. So number one, that is to repeat, and I'll repeat each one as I go through each of these corresponding um, paralogisms. The first one, the soul is substance. So now the corresponding paralogism is, I recognize self as subject by thinking, but that doesn't tell me about myself as thinking. So to kind of unpack that, I can see myself as a subject that thinks that, you know, the I think, therefore I am. But that doesn't actually tell me about the self as thinking, which is always happening according to Kant, because otherwise then there wouldn't be any kind of connection to the world and reason at the same time. So now number two, which is, sorry for the page flipping, uh, in its quality, that self is simple. So simple in that down to its barest parts can't be further divided, and that is it is consistent, which sets the stage for the third thing here, that is the unity for all beings that have this share the same capacity. So it is simple. Now the paralogism with that, paralogism, uh, is that the I, when thought in relation to apperception, is a simple thing that is not plural. To think of self as I is to locate experience, though, and therefore variation. So if the I is dealt completely with my, you know, thinking in relation to world purely, then uh, that assumes that for anyone else, they're going to have a very different relationship to the world. And then that, that idea of the self is going to change and it won't no longer be simple, won't no longer, it will no longer be simple. 
Okay, number three. Does not alter unity, not plurality, okay? Uh, so here the paralogism is that you cannot think of the self in relation to everything manifold, lest we think it possible to locate self purely with concepts, which is impossible. So right, to imagine as though we can only think of the self with, you know, from the inside of our heads would be to completely foreclose um, experience. Now finally, number four, uh, in relation to possibility of objects in space, to think of self, this is the antinomy or the paralogism, to think of self as operating from exterior objects is to analytically assume a split, so something that cannot be true. That is a split between reason or the pure cognition and experience, which of course, as we've made very clear, he wants to think of a space in between them. He wants to bridge them. So for him, what he wants to say is that the subject as thinking has a substance, right? And the substance was mentioned earlier. Uh, and that we cannot claim this without experience. So as I've said about a thousand times, it is about the bridge between experience and pure reason or reason. So in his words he, here, he says that thus, if that concept by means of the term substance is to indicate an object that can be given, and if it, and if it is to become a cognition, then it must be grounded on a persisting intuition as the indispensable condition of the objective reality of a concept, namely, that through which alone an object is given. But now we have an inner intuition, nothing at all that persists, for the I is only the consciousness of my thinking. Thus, if we stay merely from with thinking, we also lack the necessary condition for applying the concept of substance, that is, of a subject subsisting for itself, to itself as a thinking being. And the simplicity of substance that is bound up with the objective reality of this concept completely falls away and is transformed merely into a logically qualitative unity of self-consciousness and thinking in general, whether or not the subject is composite. So then here he takes aim at uh, someone named Mendelssohn who claims that the, that the soul persists, that is the soul exists always and forever. So against him, he says that we can't really claim the persistence of the soul because he says that it has an intensive magnitude as was presented earlier. So that is to say that it has a possibility between zero, that is non-existence, and one, that is existence, that is full realization. Uh, but that for Kant, the soul, because it has an intensive magnitude, can actually go back to zero through what he calls remission. So in his words, for even consciousness always has a degree, which can always be diminished. Consequently, so does the faculty of being conscious of oneself, and likewise with all other faculties. Thus, the persistence of the soul, merely as an object of inner sense, remains unproved and even unprovable, although its persistence in life, where the thinking being as a human being is at the same time an object of outer sense, is clear of itself. But this is not at all sufficient for the rational psychologist who undertakes to prove from mere concepts the absolute persistence of the soul even beyond life. So he's saying that, sure, we can't say that the soul is there, but it's like he's saying, like, yeah, it's something we know is there. But the rational psychologist claiming to be able to arrive at that conclusion through kind of logical dialectical approach will always fall short. So the, the way that we might be able to understand this and the way that he takes it up is the kind of divide between materialism and spirituality, where the rational psychologist in a kind of material way claims to get at the, well, more of a spiritual way, I guess, but in the way that they try to get at the soul, 
you know, tries to abstract from all uh, experience. Whereas the materialist tries to abstract from all, you know, reason, all pure, well, not reason itself, but all like pure concepts in order to arrive at something uh, without, you know, any a priori thought, which, as he said at the beginning, you can't do because you can't make general inferences about something solely through experience. So therefore, he's upset. He doesn't like either one of those approaches. So what the rational psychologist in this case reveals for Kant, and there's a, there's a quote here, an important one I want to read, but I'm going to paraphrase the first part of it because it's long, is that we shouldn't, you know, just commit ourselves to either pure materialism or pure spirituality, as I just mentioned. But he says, on the contrary, it rather, that is the doctrine of kind of rational psychology, it rather reminds us to regard this refusal of our reason to give an answer to those curious questions which reach beyond this life, as reasons hint that we should turn our self-knowledge away from fruitless and extravagant speculation toward fruitful, fruitful practical uses, which, even if it is always directed only to objects of experience, takes its principles from somewhere higher, and so determines our behavior as if our vocation extended infinitely far above experience, and hence above life, or this life. So here he now reiterates the problem he has with rational psychology. So what he says is, the dialectical illusion in rational psychology rests on the confusion of the idea of reason, of, of a pure intelligence, with the concept, in every way indeterminate of a thinking being in general. I think of myself in behalf of a possible experience by abstracting from all actual experience, and from this I conclude that I could become conscious of my existence even outside experience and of its empirical conditions. Consequently, I confuse the possible abstraction from my empirically determined existence with the supposed consciousness of a separate possible existence of my thinking self, and believe that I cognize what is substantial in me as a transcendental subject, since I have in thought merely the unity of consciousness that grounds everything determinant as a mere form of cognition. So deriving the I from thinking of the I doesn't actually get us there because it doesn't actually relate to experience. So then this puts us here into the second chapter of the dialectic here, of the second book of the Transcendental Dialectic. So right off the bat here, he presents three species of sophistical, and that is the sophist, inferences that are related to, you know, dialectics that he's trying to challenge. So the first species of these sophistical inferences has to do with the unconditioned unity of the subjective conditions of all representations in general, so of the sub subject or the soul corresponding to the categorical syllogisms whose major premise as a principle states the relation of a predicate to a subject. So thus the second species of dialectical argument by analogy with hypothetical syllogisms will make the unconditioned unity of objective conditions and appearance its content, just as the third species which will come forward in the following chapter has as its theme the unconditioned unity of objective conditions of the possibility of objects in general. So to think these things in terms of reason, Kant says that it is totally necessary for us to have understanding of what he calls series. So he gives the letters M and O. So we know that N follows M and O follows N, which follows M. Uh, so he says that it is only possible for us to recognize things that is to proceed through a dialectical manner by having a, an understanding of the, the series, which he'll get into more when he presents the actual conflicts in the dialectic. 
where looking back towards the uh, conditions that is going back in time, seeing what conditions things that happen after is the act of uh, what he calls antecedentia, that is to look at what is uh, antecedental, I guess, um, as opposed to what happens after, that is the things being conditioned, which he calls inconsequentia. I probably mucked up that pronunciation, but yeah, there it is. So if we only had space, no such series would be possible because time would not pass. So it's only when there is an exi the existence of space in which we can actually perceive things and time with things actually happening that we can actually correspond ourselves in a transcendental way to these series. But these two spheres demand two different uh, modes of analysis. So in the case of time, we know that things happen sequentially and we can very easily point out the series occurring. But in space, Kant says it, it's a little bit different. So we know things happening in sequence by the boundaries that they have. So I know where a thing ends because of the boundary that it reveals to me in its appearance in space. And it is from that boundary that something else can be constituted. And through that, we can see a sequence in that in that way as far as space goes so now we get the crucial point that is the cosmological so for him there are four cosmological ideas so number one the absolute completeness of the composition of a given whole of appearances number two the absolute completeness of the division of a given whole in appearance number three the absolute completion of the arising of an appearance in general Number four, the absolute completeness of the dependence of the existence of the alterable in appearance. And we're going to get more into these later on. Or well, actually, maybe right now we'll just talk about it. So for him, the cosmological ideas essentially search for um, the unconditioned, the pure unconditioned, that is God, pretty much, uh, which is an impossibility because either the unconditioned is God and then is therefore a thing in itself, which we cannot uh, understand. But the alternative is that in this process that is looking for the unconditioned, we find that there is actually no unconditioned and that it's just infinite. So here we are presented with a what sets the stage for a lot of different distinctions. That is the arrival at the infinite or the arrival at the pure unconditioned, that is God. So in the case of the non-infinite, that is in the case of there being a God or a pure unconditioned moment, uh, the regressive view through time calls it the beginning of the world. We would call it the beginning of the universe or whatever you want. So through space, the boundary of the world, through parts of the whole, simple, through the self-activity, natural necessity. So then he gives us a way to look at the whole series in like one shot. And the word he uses is world, where he says that uh, he's concerned with the idea of the world because it evokes sense of absolute totality of the sum total of existing things. That is what is common to all of them, or what he will say later, uh, you know, because we know that something exists necessarily, or how does it go? Because we know that something exists, we must therefore conclude that something must exist necessarily. And that necessarily is what essentially codes everything, brings it together. So when we consider series in terms of totality, that is in terms of the world, so the series being the progression through time or through space, um, and we bracket off the content essentially, we are dealing with uh, the, a transcendental approach, right? Because we are now going back to space and time. 
So any dialectical approach that isn't sufficiently concerned with space and time, as you know, the things that give condition to the possibility of thinking, or in the case of the transcendental analytic, give, give possibility for understanding, um, the transcendental dialectic then fundamentally reveals that people arguing in a dialectical way are simply struggling towards what he calls a mirage or the illusion, right? Which he also calls the skeptical method. All right, so that propels us to the four dialectical conflicts that he wants to bring up. So to preface this, what he's interested in here is presenting four dialectical positions about the kind of categories presented a little earlier, which we'll get into more or I'll re-explain as we go through. To show that both the dialectical positions, that is the thesis and the antithesis, that he situates in relation to each of the questions that are being raised, he says they could both be true and they could both be false. He says we can't really know. Uh, and for that reason, like he looks at dialectics and he's like, what is even the point? Because as he shows, like they both have very solid arguments for each or each of them has very solid arguments for and against them. So we go through this. What we're going to do here is go through each one of them kind of quickly because as soon as you kind of get the point, it doesn't really matter how he does it because in each section he has, you know, the thesis, the antithesis, and then each one, the proof for either. Uh, so instead of having a whole thing about each one of them, I'm just going to kind of present them kind of quickly. But before then, I want to read a little section from later on. So this is on page 495, so about 30 pages after where uh, the dialectical conflicts come into play, where he gives the example of two astronomers who, from their different perspectives, come up with a different truth about the moon. So, in his words, one inferred, that is one of the astronomers, that the moon turns on its axis because it constantly turns the same way toward the Earth. The other, that the moon does not turn on an axis just because it constantly turns the same side toward the Earth. Both inferences were therefore correct depending on the standpoint taken when observing the moon's motion. So let me just read that again. So one inferred, namely, that the moon turns on its axis because it constantly turns the same side toward the Earth. And the other, that the moon does not turn on an axis just because it constantly turns the same side toward the Earth. So this is very, uh, this highlights the way that the two dialectical positions that can be held in an antithetical way or in a contradictory way point to the fact that they tell us absolutely nothing about the moon. <laughs> which for him is exactly what is wrong with the dialectical approach. So let's start now with the first dialectical conflict. So here is the thesis about it. The world has a beginning in time and in space. Therefore, it is also enclosed in boundaries. Okay, now he opposes that with the antithesis that um, world has no beginning in time and space and is infinite. So... The thesis says world is finite in that it has a boundary in time and space, and the antithesis suggests that it's infinite. So he proves the thesis correct, that is that the world has a beginning and a boundary, by saying that the opposite, that is if it was infinite, would mean that everything would be infinitely apart. So if there was an infinite amount of space, then no two things can possibly be close together, therefore we couldn't perceive space at all. And it also means, as we will get to later on, it would mean then that there would be no, no possibility of even conceptualizing anything. 
So then for the antithesis that he puts in opposition to that, that is the world has no beginning and is therefore infinite, he says that if world had a beginning, that would imply a non-time that preceded it, that wouldn't be able to birth anything. And it can't be bounded because it would have to stand in relation to a non-thing. So this, so this is the idea that if the world has boundaries in time and space, then there would be a non-time that preceded it, which can't exist, and there would be a non-space that existed outside of it, which can't exist. So that's the first dialectical conflict. Now the second. So this one goes as follows. Where the thesis is, every composite substance in the world consists of simple parts. And the antithesis is that nothing consists of simple parts. So the thesis is proved where he says that if the opposite were the case, nothing would exist. That is, if nothing was consisted of simple parts or the common thing that binds everything together, then nothing would exist. Where the antithesis, that is, nothing consists of simple parts, he says um, the proof is simply because then that, then that would mean that there is such a thing as something in itself. Because if it everything was... Um, uh, if it did have a kind of simple part to it, then it would posit there being a thing in itself that we could not comprehend, and therefore we could not actually pay heed to. It couldn't exist. So now the third dialectical conflict, the thesis goes as follows. Causality not only derives from nature, but also from experience. So then the antithesis goes as follows. There's no freedom. Everything is, is determined by laws. So the proof of the first one is that if it is accepted, that is causality not only derives from nature, but also from experience, if it, if it accept, if accepted, then there can be no originary cause. So then how would we make sense of anything? Uh, and then for the antithesis, where there's no freedom, everything is determined by laws, the proof is that this would imply spontaneous creation of a cause without a cause preceding it. So to supplant law of nature with law of freedom is still su to submit to laws, essentially. Okay, now the fourth dialectical conflict. Um, the thesis is that part of the world is necessary, and the antithesis is that there is no necessary being. Uh, so the proof for the part of the world is being necessary is that the series of causes and effects are a necessary condition of all things. And the antithesis, there is no necessary being. The proof is that this would posit unconditioned starting point. So these cosmological arguments, these dialectical conflicts, conflicts for Kant, are sophistical because they try to just, through concepts, arrive at a kind of higher truth by bracketing off experience. So for him, he kind of characterizes the thesis and the antithesis as follows. So in all of these examples... The thesis is what he calls the dogmatic assertion. So it's dogmatic in that there's a belief in an originary, originary point and that therefore there is freedom. So the originary point is the idea that there's like a boundary to space and time, that it's not infinite, that if we look through all the conditions, we can find a pure unconditioned point. But then you might say, well, how does that, how does that allow for freedom? Well, the answer is that if there is at one point pure spontaneous act of being that just comes out of nowhere that means that it's possible for something to happen that isn't conditioned then that gives us the opportunity to imagine the possibility of spontaneity at the level of freedom so because if we say the opposite if we say that everything is conditioned then everything is already determined right this is the basis of determinism because then 
what could I do? If everything's already determined and advanced, i.e., if the world and time are infinite, that means they are infinite in both directions and have already been determined, then there cannot be any freedom. Only if there is an originary point for Kant can there be freedom here. So in the case of the thesis that he says, as I just mentioned, is dogmatic, that is belief in originary point, and therefore freedom, he says that it has practical interests, that is, supports foundations of morality and religion. It has speculative interests, it provides metaphysical answers, because you point to the, you know, the real true thing out there. Uh, and then three, uh, it gives a kind of popularity as a popular uh, component in that, or kind of popular, illicit, is taken up popularly, my god, how many wrong ways can I put that? Um, that is, it gives kind of a kind of comfort in knowing that there's an answer out there. So the uh, antithesis is for him empirical, because it deals only with the laws of nature, essentially, because things are determined by cause and effect, which we know is an empirical assertion that always posits that something is conditioned by something else. Nothing just happens out of the blue. So what this does is it takes power away from morality and religion. It uh, There's a potential here in that the there is an opportunity afforded by empiricism, not burdened by dogmatic assertions. So that is, it gives us maybe an opportunity to look at the world in, you know, quote unquote, rational ways, because, you know, we can then look at the world as being a thing about cause and effect, setting up the basis for science. Uh, but in any case... These two perspectives are embodied in, for Kant, in Epicureanism and Platonism. So that is, Epicureanism appreciates knowledge over the practical, whereas Platonism does the opposite. So, coming from these two perspectives, uh, the thesis would posit that human reason is by nature architectonic, that it, that is, it, it is structured, it has a, like a real structure. Uh, Whereas for the antithesis, no such structure would be possible. And that when we are confronted with these kind of dialectical conflicts, Kant makes it very clear that we, we can't solve them. Like there is no real answer to one or the other. And the way that he puts it is like, what it'll come down to is just one side conceding to the other. Because if you take them to their logical conclusions, they're both completely valid or completely false. So Kant says, even if we had the capacity to think a thing in itself, we wouldn't actually be able to lend it to any concepts. We wouldn't actually be able to put it into language because then that, because as we know from Kant, like Kant, uh, like language relies on a connection to the world, to reality, to appearances. So he says that uh, we lack a sufficient completed synthesis and the consciousness of its absolute totality in order to actually give a kind of appearance, a kind of form to these pure concepts like God, like more morality, mortality, immortality. So in the dialectical framework, either side of the dialectical thing thinks themselves correct and to have arrived at the answer. Uh, but for Kant, the transcendental philosophy is not nearly as confident, right? Because it says, you know, we can't, we can't really know. We can't really know because we don't have the faculties to actually comprehend it. Now here's, I guess, the real kicker, probably one of the most important terms that he that I think people take up more than maybe they should, because he doesn't talk about it a whole lot, but that is transcendental idealism. So he opposes 
these dialectical frameworks with what he calls transcendental idealism, which for him is the act of giving truth or attributing truth to appearances. So it isn't to say that underneath appearances, there are real things that we can arrive at with pure concepts. He says that appearances is all we have, and that is what is true. So therefore, the only thing within us that is true is that capacity to recognize those images. So therefore, all that we can do as a matter of like true philosophical investigation is to recognize those faculties that make it possible to see appearances as true. But does that mean he's advocating for a kind of like what, you know, would come up 200 years later as like a kind of postmodern, oh, what is reality type thing or like a simulacrum type thing? No, because he's saying that there are still divides between reality, what he's talking about here, and things like dreams or hallucinations, because he's not interested in the ways that they conflict with one another. He's interested in perception at its basis form. So even the act of us seeing hallucinations he finds very interesting although it doesn't comply to the understanding or comply to you know the other kind of categories it is still something for him that is interesting because it still points to the fact that we have some kind of faculty to perceive so he gives us at this point another good way to imagine or conceptualize the difference between the transcendental dialectic and regular dialectics so thus the transcendental dialectic and this is on 519 in my version Thus, the transcendental dialectic by no means provides support for skepticism, though it does for the skeptical method, which can point to the dialectic as an example of the great utility of letting the arguments of reason confront one another in the most complete freedom. Such arguments, although they may not deliver what one was seeking, nevertheless will always deliver something useful and serviceable for the correction of our judgments. So then he gives us a new, a new term, which is in like, wild like there's so much in this book uh i feel like i'm all over the place but i feel like this book is all over the place anyways um okay so then he introduces what he calls the principle of reason or the regulative principle of reason that he opposes to these other cosmological approaches or what he calls the constitutive cosmological principles so for him what he says is that the regulative principle of reason in regard to this problem of ours is therefore that everything in the world of sense has an empirically conditioned existence and there cannot be an unconditioned necessity in it in it in regard to any of its properties that there is no member of the series such that one does not always expect an empirical condition for it in a possible experience and for which one must seek for such a condition as far as one can and nothing justifies us in de deriving any existence from a condition outside the empirical series. So for him, of course, we're dealing with these conditions, right? But we cannot say that they are just like Hegelian, you know, what, what you know, Marx wrote, I think in a, for anyone familiar with the kind of early letter writing of Marx, or early, at some point, letter writing of Marx, I think it was to critiquing uh, Proudhon, I think. I might, you know, be missing this, but he says, what he doesn't want to be doing is what he calls Hegelian junk that has no connection to, you know, the real movements of history. And I'm going to say in a very kind of violent way that Kant, to some extent, is saying something similar. Kant is saying that, you know, this dialectical approach, it, we can't throw it out the window completely. But we have to seriously turn, we have to, we have to shift the way 
that it conceptualizes real lived experience in the world. So for him, the regulative principle of reason suggests that the entire totality of conditions implies there having been a condition that comes first. That we know for sure. We cannot question that because that is what our experience tells us. Now, we can't say that it's infinite. We can't say that there's really a beginning, uh, to which Kant will kind of give us an answer. But what we can know right now through this regulative principle of reason, this principle of reason, is that we have these conditions. And we must take this as a rule, he says, which he calls... um, it is a principle of the greatest possible continuation and extension of experience in accordance with no empirical boundary would hold as an absolute boundary. Thus, it is a principle of reason which, as a rule, postulates that should be affected by us in the regress, but does not anticipate what is given in itself in the object prior to any regress. Hence, I call it a regulative principle of reason. Uh, whereas the principle of the absolute totality of series of conditions as given in itself in the object, in the appearances, would be a constitutive cosmological principle, the nullity of which I've tried to show through just this distinction, thereby preventing what would otherwise unavoidably happen, the ascription of objective reality to an idea that merely serves as a rule. Now, this rule gives us insight into things that have happened in the past, which we haven't experienced according to the nature of the rule that we've then we've crafted out. So, for example, I can imagine life outside of Earth or on another planet. I've never experienced it, nor will I ever probably experience it, but I could still imagine it. And I can imagine that out there somewhere, there's probably another world very similar to this one. But does that mean that I am going pure a priori and giving like a non-experienced like, you know, attribution of liveliness to something that I've never experienced? No, not according to Kant, because I am still only crafting this thing, this idea that exists ostensibly outside experience with my understanding of experience. So in his words, only experience can settle how far the organization in an articulated body may go. And even if it was certain to attain to to know inorganic parts, such parts must nevertheless at least lie within a possible experience. But how far the transcendental division of an appearance in general may reach is not a matter of experience at all, but it is rather a principle of reason never to take the empirical regress in the composition of what is extended in the conformity with the nature of this appearance to be absolutely complete. So what happens then if we harken back, if we go back to the idea that appearances, right, are all we have? Kant asks, what happens if we think of an appearance as a thing in itself? To which he gives a rather lengthy answer. For if appearances are things in themselves, then freedom cannot be saved. And I'll say the reason for that would be that if there is a thing in itself, we cannot conceptualize it, and it always is already determined as a, you know, unique being or not, not a unique being, always determined in and of itself, that, you know, determines us and we are something we can't actually understand, but are there, then we have no control over what that being necessarily is. So he says, For if appearances are things in themselves, then freedom cannot be saved. The nature is the completely determining cause sufficient in itself of every occurrence. And the condition for an occurrence is always contained only in the series of appearances that, along with their effect, 
are necessary under the law of nature. If, on the other hand, appearances do not count for any more than they are in fact, namely, not things in themselves, but only mere representations connected in accordance with empirical laws, then they themselves must have grounds that are not appearances. Such an intelligible cause, however, will not be determined in its causality by appearances, even though its effects appear, and so can be determined through other appearances. Thus the intelligible cause, with its causality, is outside the series. Its effects, on the contrary, are encountered in the series of empirical conditions, that is what we can see through appearance. The effect can therefore be regarded as free in regard to its intelligible cause, and yet simultaneously in regard to appearance, uh, as their result according to the necessity of nature. This is a distinction which, if it is presented in general and entirely abstractly, must appear extremely subtle and obscure, but in its application it will be enlightening. So here we are getting the hints of something very interesting, that on the level of appearance, there's freedom, right? What we see that exists within, like, not as a thing in itself, but in the kind of free-flowing dynamic of subjectivity that, you know, we engage with the image, is a, on the sensuous level. But then underneath, there's that intelligible one. That is, the thing upon which the appearance is predicated, or on which the appearance is predicated, which is a very mysterious thing, but that is where unfreedom is. So then the next section is him conceptualizing the possibility that we might not be free nor unfree. We might actually be both at the same time. Where he says, and this is the title of the section, the possibility of causality through freedom unified with the universal law of natural necessity. So the thing that exists underneath appearance is what he calls the transcendental object, which we can assume has its own causality. And sorry, I need to, I need to clarify something. I said that the appearance form was free. That That's wrong. It's the other way around. I for some reason muck that up because if you've ever read this it's difficult uh it's the other way around because the empirical form that is the form that's appearance gives itself over to nature as law as to the law of cause and effect whereas the intelligible form that is the thing in itself is free because it posits like an originary spontaneous thing that somehow exists outside of time and space because it exists outside of our perceptive capacity sorry so we have this split, right, between freedom, that is the thing in itself, and nature, that is appearance, cause and effect. Now, he associates that with the ideas of understanding, or sorry, reason and understanding respectively. So reason relates to freedom, understanding relates to nature. But he says, how can reason be free if it is always already constituted by and in appearance? Well, he gives us an answer. So he says, for uh, sorry, hence no given action, since it can be perceived only as appearance, can begin absolutely from itself. But of reason, one cannot say that, there, that before the state in which it determines the power of choice, another state proceeds in which the state is self-determined. So what precedes reason? It just seems to be a faculty of that exists there. Um, self-determined. So, for since reason itself is not an appearance and is not subject at all to any conditions of sensibility, no temporal sequence takes place in it, even as to its causality, and the, the dynamical law of nature cannot be applied to it. So, to illustrate this, he gives the example of someone who lies. So, a lying person exhibits some kind of freedom as relates to their uh, kind of 
empirical capacity or how it is supposedly determined empirically. So here I'm going to close this off because that ends the second chapter of the second book of the Transcendental Dialectic. Uh, and I want to just read one part that gives a kind of summary of what the rest of the book is going to do, or the Transcendental Aesthetic, or Dialectic, sorry. So thus the first step we take beyond the sensible world compels us in acquiring new knowledge to begin with the investigation of the absolute necessary being, in other words, God, or what he calls the highest being, and to derive from the concepts of it the concepts of all things insofar as they are merely intelligible. We will set about this at attempt in the following chapter. Okay, so I'm hoping, for those that made it this far, thank you. I'm hoping that I'll be able to get through this, the rest of the book, in the next episode. Uh, but I, I will probably, if it has to be longer than normal, I'll just make it longer than normal. Because I really want to get through this. Uh, but yeah, my notes suggest that it might take a little longer, but we'll see. But for those that made it this far, thank you. Uh, and if you run, if you come across any problems with what I said, please let me know. Because I am not an expert on this. I just read very carefully. And I think that I am fairly, you know, faithful to what he's doing. Uh, with exception, a few things that I'm a little bit 